Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Node. We have been running this podcast for 363 days. That's two days shy of a year. That's an accomplishment, I'd say. And I am just so appreciative to all of you who subscribe and listen on a regular basis. I hope it's not like a chore, but I appreciate it like it's a chore. I appreciate it like if you came to my house and raked the leaves in my lawn. That's how I appreciate you. It's like a, like it's a gratitude for you doing a favor for me. But really, I also hope that listening to this podcast is not is not a chore. I hope that as you are raking the leaves in your grass, listening to this podcast can be a source of enjoyment or may I dare say education. Education from our guests at least. Anyway, welcome. If you're new here, welcome. I'm your host Steven. Where we synced up in space and time, I would shake you warmly by the hand. Today we have a wonderful guest, Matt Hepler. Matt is an environmental scientist for the nonprofit Appalachian Voices. I sought out contact with Appalachian Voices to talk about an issue that I saw, well, in multiple places, and I'm sure, well, you might have seen this depending on what where you live, but, you know, just, and I mentioned this in podcasts, so sorry for the repetition, but just just seeing swaths of mountains and swaths of land just totally taken out. Like, they had, you know, okay, living in Salt Lake City, I just see, saw this giant mine, the Bingham Mine, which I think is one of the biggest mines, if not the biggest, in North America. It's just, it's just the whole, it's like multiple mountains have been taken out, just mowed down by big trucks. Um, and I saw that in Butte, Montana, where I've traveled quite a few times. And, you know, you just see that all over the place, like gravel pits, mines, stuff like that. And I got searching and I found Appalachian Voices on the internet because they're one of the only, uh, places that actually provides any sort of number as far as acres of land that have been taken out from mining. And it just makes me kind of concerned, like... What's going on up there? Not only, like, first, I love to recreate in the mountains, and I'm sure some of you do too, just, like, climbing a mountain and looking down and just seeing, like, the whole different environment up there is incredible. It's its own thing, and I just got to wondering, like, what's what's happening? Like, what are the effects of this? Not only are you, you're operating big equipment, unearthing heavy metals, like, up high where the water runs down to where people live and also animals live up there and you know we're kind of we're tearing down plants and we're (laughs) like making these animals refugees whatever and this isn't to cast judgment well it kind of is casting judgment but it's not to say this is all bad um but i do kind of see it as you know, like before antibiotics, somebody gets a pretty bad infection in their left forearm because they got shot with a musket. You know, what's the uh, what's the answer? You're gonna have to saw that friggin' arm off. And 
I'm guilty. I use electricity, like Matt mentions this in the podcast. We're all kind of using the stuff that is extracted from these sites, and this is certainly not to vilify anyone who has worked in that area or, you know, makes a livelihood from that. Um, We all have to do what we have to do, and, like, we run our economy how we do, how we need to, Um, and I'm certainly grateful that I can turn my lights on and be able to see at night. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, yeah, you got that infection in your left forearm, and you have to cut it off. And maybe it's a better strategy to look for something that's going to kill that infection without having to cut off your arm. So, as mining goes, or as resources go, maybe the idea is let's find something that has less of an impact on our environment where we can live with everything that's around us that's also living without uh, without disturbing it too much. So that's that. I think Matt does a wonderful job talking us through the process of mountaintop removal mining, MTR, and what he and Appalachian Voices are really trying to do over there. And I'm very appreciative that he came on, and I'm also really appreciative that people are doing the work that they are doing. Also, if you're interested in checking out Appalachian Voices generally or yeah, learning more about this, you can find their website, which I have put a link to in the show notes. As always, you can support the node by rating, by subscribing, by listening like you're doing, by sharing this with friends or people that you think would be interested in listening to these podcasts, um, sharing on social media, all of those things. Yeah, you can send us money in the tip jar, which is at the bottom of the show notes. All of those things are super helpful. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your day, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Matt Hepler. Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Do you want to start with just a little intro? Um, Let us know who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Matthew Hepler. I'm an environmental scientist for Appalachian Voices. I work on our Central Appalachian team, and we work primarily in fighting um, strip mining and helping community members um, deal with problems related to large-scale surface mining. Yeah, and I guess we can just jump straight into it. One of the one of the primary reasons why. I made contact and wanted to get this interview going was uh, really just noticing visually the impacts of surface mining in the West. I'm from Montana and I live in Salt Lake currently and I've seen um, just like Butte, Montana, you can see the mountains outside of Butte are totally stripped down and the same in Salt Lake. There's just certain sections of the mountain that have been totally torn apart and it just gets me thinking like, well, here in Salt Lake, we're relying mostly on uh, snow melt for our water sources, yet we're dealing with these mountains that have been totally 
stripped down and you've got a lot of machinery in there. So I know, Matt, you've worked a lot with mountaintop removal mining. Um, if you want to just jump in and let us know, yeah, maybe just give us the rundown on what that is. Yeah, certainly. So mountaintop removal mining is a type of coal mining in which uh, essentially they use large explosives to blast um, or do blasting on the mountain and remove large amounts of material and essentially move it into, remove it into adjacent valleys to get to the coal seams beneath. Now, very often this is paired with a thing called valley fills, which, um, so that is the act of removing the overburden into the adjacent valley. It's, um, the reason why that happens is basically you deal with a thing called rock swell. Um, so when you blast off the top of the mountain, that rock actually sits in a state of compression. Mm -hmm. And it, by the act of blasting it open, like that rock had the weight of the rest of the mountain on top of it, yeah. um, which um, the result of that is that you end up with a higher volume of material than you started with, and they call that material overburden, okay. um, which require, has to be placed somewhere. And so it is very often placed in kind of the adjacent hollows. Um, so mountaintop removal, removal has kind of become a colloquial name for like any large scale surface mining, surface coal mining, yeah. particularly in Appalachia, but also everywhere. Um, if you talk about it to like the state agencies or the federal agencies and the coal mining industry, to them mountaintop removal means a very specific thing, mm -hmm. which is like taking off the, the surface portion of a mountain and then not like having a plan in your permit to not restore that back to the approximate original contour. Um, but kind of in our more general usage of the term, it's um, kind of a stand in for any large scale surface mining, particularly if it has that valley fill component to it. Uh, so I guess you deal largely with the effects of, um, the valley fill component, and I want to get into that. Um, but for it, first, I'm just a little curious, like, I guess traditionally thinking about mining, you think about guys going into tunnels with mining carts and hard hats and whatnot. And um, I'm just curious, like, why mountaintop removal would be a good um, strategy for mining coal or any other type of resource um, as opposed to, like, digging into the mountain, um, especially when it has w like associated with it, such large sides of side effects on the environment. Yeah. So uh, the argument that the industry give is gives, and I mean, I think there is truth to it is that it is cheaper. So typically on underground mines of coal, you're looking at seams like larger seams, 30 to 40 inches. Um, Mountaintop removal mining allows them to get at smaller seams, um, but it'll collect a lot more of them. So, like, the economics of them allows them to, um, yeah, get at those smaller seams, and, like, which they would not otherwise be able to do. But it comes at a great cost because they're blasting through often tens or hundreds of feet of rock to get at, like, 12 to 18 inches of coal. Yeah. Um, in each of those seams. Yeah. So it's more removing large swaths to get at 
many small opportunities versus going specifically at a lot of small coal seams. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's reflected in the employment numbers as well. So underground mines require a lot more manpower. Uh-huh. Um, many, many more employees um, compared to um, mountaintop removal mines, which are often like can be done by 10 or 20 guys. Oh, wow. And just a lot of machinery, I'd imagine. Yeah, and very, very large machines. Um, so, so, I mean, some of the, the bulldozers and um, dump trucks on a mountaintop removal, so like, like the wheels are larger than cars. Oh, wow. Yeah, as I was looking into this, I can't remember the name of the machine, but it seems like the, the largest machine in the world is associated with this, and it looked like a, just like a giant yeah. excavator. Yeah, so the drag line, yeah, the drag line buckets are huge. Now they're not on every mine, okay. but they are on a few mines. And um, yeah, I mean that that may very well be the largest piece of construction equipment out there. I mean, the bucket is the size of a small house. Oh wow! Yeah, so just houses, house loads of material at a time. Um, to get a picture of how this process goes, I guess. Do they just, is it a process of just going out there and planting explosives or is the forest cleared? Is there any sort of resource protection before, um, I guess, companies move in to start blowing up the mountaintop? Yeah, I've been, I can answer that question in a couple ways. I can start talking about laws and permitting, but I can also talk about the process of mining. So I think mm-hmm. I'll start there. Um, so normally, like sometimes even before a mine gets its operation and permit, like they'll go ahead and clear cut the land that can happen before or after the fact, mm-hmm. uh, after the permitting process. But, um, then there's a drilling stage where they plant the explosions, explosives, and then they clear the rubble to get to the coal seams. Mm-hmm. But then also, um, so they kind of do this in kind of incremental phases, like generally mining in a particular direction across the surface of um, the area that they're permitted to mine. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of moving said rubble to adjacent areas as they get to the scenes. And then um, they all, they're required by law to do reclamation. So there's like phases for reclamation too. Like the surface mining control and reclamation act requires them to put the land back to an approximate original contour unless they get a variance. And then through, um, in those phases, they then like do what's called backfilling and regrading. And then they would then have to hydro seed that, um, kind of rubble, rubble area that they have backfilled and regraded. And then, uh, eventually with the hydro seeding, like that's, um, that's kind of like planting grasses. And then they come mm-hmm. back and plant trees on the site if that is the designated post mining land use. Yeah. So, um, now there's a, I mean, there's a lot of kind of nuances in there because they don't have to redesignate the post mining land use as an unmanaged forest. Very often they do, but Mm -hmm. they can also find other uses for said land. And sometimes like they'll change the post mining land use to like pasture or hay grazing. So like, that allows them to not plant trees back at the site. 
Okay. And sometimes they, the post-mining land use, they try to do economic development type projects. And that's where we get into that mountaintop removal definition that I was kind of referencing earlier. Um, so they could have an industrial post-mining land use and then not, that would exempt them from reclaiming the site back at all. Um, so they could apply for these different variances on the permits and like, so basically what I'm saying is the permit determines a lot of, um, how the mining proceeds and, um, what gets put back on site. Okay. And I, so I guess you, some people might say like best case scenario, there's a reclamation permit. Um, and it sounds like you're saying they have to rebuild the land to a specific slope so that it like does resemble a mountain and whatnot. I'm wondering though, in those cases with the, uh, like with the amount of material that's going back on top of other material, do you have like the opposite effect of, um, like the ground expanding? Does it kind of sink and you might lose a contour that you would originally have there? Well, I'll say they've got, um, because of the excess material, the land's not going to look a hundred percent like it is before. And really, I mean, that's a judgment call on the agencies or like how approximate can it be? Yeah. But it does open the door for, um, yeah, all kinds of different kinds of, well, there's a wide variety of interpretations of approximate original contour. Mm. And also, as I stated before, like, in those valley fills, um, if they fill in a valley, very often, like that's the fill is kind of this well-defined, engineered structure, mm-hmm. and um, well, they those things themselves can create a lot of water problems, um, particularly with what's known as ionic pollution. They're essentially making the streams filled with ions and salts, which make it harder for. Um, aquatic organisms to live downstream of them. Um, Hmm. and how long has this type of mining been going on? So originally in the fifties, sixties and seventies, you had contour mines. So these were the original, what were called strips Mm -hmm. where they would mine along a constant elevation along the mountainside. And this is a form of surface mining, but it wasn't, the same scale as mountaintop removal. Um, so I would mountaintop removal really expanded and took off in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. And, um, I would say probably uh, kind of depends on how you measure it, but if you're measuring it by surface area disturbed, probably hit its peak around 2009 and 2010. Okay. Um, now the coal production peak happened sooner than that. Um, so, uh, I'll, I'll have to get you the exact date on when that is. Um, yeah. And I guess I'm also just wondering like, okay, this has been going on since the nineties, but there's been surface mining since the like 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and I'm curious too, like what, and this is kind of how I found your organi- organization is just asking the question online, like how much 
how many acres of mountains have been removed or damaged and yeah i'm i'm just curious the extent to to which like land has been turned into something other than it originally was yeah surface mined in appalachia yeah and unfortunately i do not have the exact figures committed to memory no worries i remember in 2010 there it was an area in appalachia that was greater than the state of delaware Um, and that was 10 years ago um but it's Right now, I am working on an interesting project. I mean, I could look up the exact number, and I am working on this interesting project with um, SkyTruth in which we are um, taking the amount of disturbed area and um, making that publicly available and also the amount of um, reclaimed area. Mm -hmm. So, like, kind of looking at the disturbance over the time using satellite imagery and plotting that out mm-hmm. and then looking at how much of that then act actively recovers right. and um, graphing that out. Now, unfortunately I don't remember the exact acreages um, for central Appalachia um, or each of the individual States, but I know that I have access to that data. Um, yeah. And so the disturbed acreage is already available on SkyTruth's website. Okay. Um, but the reclaimed acreage, hope to get that out. Uh, hopefully, April or May might be a little bit later. But okay. um, that is one of the projects I'm working on right now, using a program called Google Earth Engine to classify satellite imagery and um, yeah, kind of produce those numbers. Yeah, and I imagine it's pretty hard to to get those exact numbers um, at least very quickly because you're dealing with multiple states and. Uh, many different agencies to get data on that. Um, yeah, but I that's guess... That's very true. Every every state does its um, thing a little bit differently, which is, well, time-consuming, to say the least. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I guess the general gist of it, though, is, I mean, this took off really in the 90s and peaked in around 2010, and it's 2020 now, and, like, 10 years ago it had disturbed more land than the state size of the state of Delaware. And I guess that's pretty shocking. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of land and I can't imagine the repercussions that that has had in the area. And I would like to get into that some more. Um, but what's on my mind right now is you're also talking about reclamation and we were talking about that earlier and I'm curious, um, what kind of timeline you're looking at when you're talking about um, a reclaimed site kind of healing and being able to support the amount of like uh, biodiversity that it had before it was uh, strip mined. Yeah. And there's, unfortunately to all of these questions, there's a lot to them. Yeah. So I I will go into the reclamation question though, um, which is, is also this kind of the central question of that project that I just satellite measuring project that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but first let me say different coal companies have different levels of motivation for reclaiming sites. Well, mm-hmm. definitely some coal companies do better jobs than others. Many do the bare minimum. Yeah. And I would argue some do even less than the bare minimum and like get away, try to get away with it through, things like uh, bankruptcy proceedings. Okay. 
So there's a wide range of just reclamation, uh, I don't know, just reclamation activity at the company level to begin with. Um, I will say I have seen good reclamation out there, but um, really that's what this project I'm uh, doing right now is all about is trying to um, get a good standard of comparison across states so Mm -hmm. we can really kind of nail down who's doing good and who's doing bad um, without so much relying on the state's data as much. Um, Now there are kind of, two there have been two major theories of reclamation yeah so the first was um kind of the initial state where they did not they were worried really worried about erosion the state regulators were so they compacted all the soil and while that did help with erosion problems somewhat it was also really terrible for tree growth Uh uh-huh So as a result of that, a lot of mines that followed that particular reclamation plan did not have great reforestation recovery. Right. Now, I always see these sites, they always remind me of kind of like the savanna almost. It's like, it's a grassy shrub land. The trees enter into a state of what's called arrested succession. Yes, some trees are living on it, but it's, they're not growing to the full height that they really are. And like, they're not, the site is unable to reforest in a way if, as if it were just simply logged. Yeah. So, um, that was the old approach. Okay. There has been a newer approach, um, that's come out more recently called the forestry reclamation approach in which they don't compact the soil. And that does actually allow for more erosion, which also like creates some water quality problems initially, mm-hmm. but does allow for better tree growth. Now, um, I am a believer in the forestry reclamation approach on the caveat though, that like, it's not a perfect solution because there's also like, you do get that sedimentation issue in the stream in the earlier years. So it's not, a hundred percent great. Um, but it, I do believe it does a better job of reforesting. Now, um, one of our research questions on the project that I keep mentioning does actually look at, we're looking at the differences between forestry reclamation approach sites and non forestry reclamation approach sites. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's one of the research questions we're answering now, trying to get at that with the satellite imagery too. Okay. So, yeah, it sounds like there's a mishmash of approaches that have been taken over the years, and then that depends on the coal company and whatnot. Um, Even with all of that, have you seen um, a reclaimed site that you couldn't distinguish from uh, maybe an old growth or just a national forest in, in your area? Well... Yeah, so I'll, I will say this about it. Mm-hmm. I do not, I am not uh, convinced that it, we, you can get it back to 100%. But I will say I have seen fairly healthy trees grow on mine sites. Okay. So it's, um, most of those are younger forests. 
So, I mean, even if I could go out to the oldest mine out there, like some of the older strips were, um, I mean, you're still only talking about 30 years of growth. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think you would ever see anything that would resemble old growth for us. But, right. I mean, I have seen large amounts of diverse trees on a few sites. Mm-hmm. Now, I would not characterize that as the norm. Yeah. A lot of what I have seen is kind of that mixed grassy shrubland with some trees in it. And often those sites also have a lot of invasive autumn olives in them. Okay. which just are able to establish well on disturbed sites. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like when you're looking at forest reclamation, you still have to account for the, the time that it takes for a tree to grow, which 30 year, a 30 year old tree is not a very mature tree as far as I know. Um, so yeah, it sounds like a, like a long, a lengthy process of trying to reestablish um, what once was there. And I'm curious too, you you talked about erosion. Um, are the original watersheds reestablished in that area or, or are new streams formed through precipitation and runoff? How, how does water, water work after being reclaimed? A site is reclaimed. Oh yeah. Yeah, we can spend a lot of time talking about water um, underneath mine sites. Yeah. Um, so I'll get into that now. Um, so kind of one of my jobs at Appalachian Voices is we kind of lead a citizen science group that goes around that tests water underneath mines. Um, so that looks at physical parameters like um, conductivity, temperature, pH. But we also will do like heavy metal sampling and um look at things like total suspended solids, which is essentially sediment. Mm -hmm. So, um, mines can have lots of different kinds of water problems depending on how they're managed. Mm -hmm. Um, so sediment is one of the primary ones and that's from erosion. Now a mine is supposed to have a pond controlling the sediment runoff at every spot that there would be a stream or intermittent stream, like exiting that mine site, like anywhere that drainage could go, there's supposed to be some form of drainage control. Now, sometimes that works, but very often we see violations of uh, sediment and sediment control. So like when sometimes those ponds could fill up, they're like, this has become especially true in these bankruptcy settings where we see more and more mines kind of running out of operating funds. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of one of the first problems that tends to pop up are these sediment violations where like ponds are controlling the sediment, but then they fill up and then they're no longer functioning. Mm -hmm. So, um, sediment, um, destroys the biodiversity downstream by kind of just filling in and, um, covering up the benthic macrovertebrates that live below the ponds. Um, You could also have, uh, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but you can also have um, total dissolved solids issues. So that has to do with kind of the minerals that are permanently dissolved in the water and Mm -hmm. in the water column. So ponds aren't really going to address that issue unless maybe they're chemically treated or have some other 
more advanced water treatment process. Mm-hmm. And very often below these valley fills, you get a lot of more of these kind of dissolved solids that are um, into the streams. And that um, tends to impact the macroinvertebrates in kind of a different way. And that is like it kind of messes with their homeostasis. Okay. So if you think about it, like these organisms were designed to live in fresh water, but we're dissolving lots of minerals into this water and kind of changing their environment to something that would be more brackish. Okay. And like they're just not evolved to cope with that. So there's also two other kinds of, well, maybe three other, four other kinds of water quality issues. Now, um, we do test for heavy metals coming off of mines, mm-hmm. and we also look for acid mine drainage. So, well, acid mine drainage kind of occurs in more specific areas, like it's going to be localized to the specific geology of the site. Yeah. So you could be in one hollow below one valley fill and find it. And even like the next watershed over, or even like on the same mine, but just one ridge over and not have the same effect. Like the, the geologies can vary by that much. Yeah. So acid mine drainage is basically you have pyrite or pyritic material um, that gets exposed to oxygen and water. Yeah. And that starts a series of chemical reactions that then release iron and uh, lowers the pH and uh, creates kind of this orange substance that um, comes off of the mines as like kind of the iron precipitates out. Sometimes there's aluminum in that, sometimes manganese as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all has to do with the exposure of like the underlying rocks, particularly the shales around that are close to the coal, yeah. to oxygen and water. And the process itself um, releases more oxygen and water once it starts. So like once it starts, it's very, very difficult to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um now, this same thing can happen in underground mining, but it is more pronounced on surface mining, but it is also dependent on local geology. So um, we do have we do see that in specific sites. Um, we don't see it everywhere, but it is a thing we flag when we see it. Okay. Uh, we also deal um, a lot with the element selenium, which we see in some coal seams. There's some high selenium coal-bearing seams out there. Mm-hmm. And that also, um, that is a bioaccumulate that affects the reproductive qualities of fish. So oh, wow. it makes its way up the food chain from the benthic macroinvertebrates into the fish. Yeah. And um, from there, it like it somehow impacts the fish's ovaries, which leads to the next generation of fish being deformed. And we have found mines that have had exceeded the water quality standards um, of for selenium. So, um, um, yeah, wow. That sounds like a lot. And I mean, it basically sounds like there's just so much disturbance that things that have kind of found their place, uh, in the environment are getting churned up and thrown out into the watershed. And now you're dealing with lots of like heavy metals and, uh, different disturbances in the water. And, yeah, just the reproduction on the fish. I'm wondering too, like you're talking about 
Um, I guess the ionic pollution would be similar to what you were talking about, the water becoming brackish or more salty, I guess. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my kind of simple, mm-hmm. simplest explanation to explain it, that the water is getting saltier. Yeah. Now, that is not yeah. actually uh, an exact equivalent of, like, a bunch of, like, table salts not going into the water. It's like okay. a lot of dissolved minerals are, but it is it is my go-to non-science explanation <laughs> for folks who not studied water quality, right. and I think it works. Is it is it that it's becoming more positively charged? Is that more specific? Well, there's cations and anions in the water. Okay. So um, um, it, you have both. You have a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And each one of those individ- can be infect- impacting species individually, but really, like, because you're measuring it with a, an electronic device, a probe, mm-hmm. most often, like, you're not really making those distinctions, or at least um, we don't often make those distinctions. Okay. Um, I guess I guess the takeaway though would be that it looks like you're having not only like macro level ecological disturbances where you're just having large amounts of sediment disturbing the organisms but also on a uh like an elemental level you're having all of these different particles in the water that are affecting yeah fish homeostasis and reproduction and uh it also makes me wonder what are the effects also on human health and maybe any towns or communities that are around these wine mines. Yeah. And I can get into that a little bit. Um, so I will say that, well, kind of going back to the water for just a minute, it's in some ways it's difficult to talk about like a specific site and what's happening. Cause every mm-hmm. site has its kind of own unique set of problems. Yeah. Um, and then human, the human health impacts, I think, are kind of follow a similar trajectory. So there have been more than 40 peer-reviewed studies now that have linked negative health outcomes to mountaintop removal mining. Hmm. But, um, however, there haven't, hasn't been any one specific one that's, like, really pointed to what I would call a silver bullet as like, this is the thing that is causing the negative health health outcome. Yeah. Um, but there's been a lot of them that have looked at statistical correlations, um, hospital visits in areas near mining, linking coal production to negative health outcomes, li- linking um, number of acres mined per county into negative health outcomes. And yeah. they've looked at, a wide variety of different kinds of negative health outcomes. So like low birth weights, um, heart attack, lungs disease, asthma, all of those different kinds. I think it is kind of suffering from an academic, there hasn't been a solid epidemiological study Mm -hmm. that's really like put every single piece together at this point. So far it's been individuals, researchers at universities like studying their own particular field of interest on like whatever health outcome that they're interested in and then doing these academic papers on it. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, but there hasn't been a study that's directly pointed to water quality. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a few that seems to suggest that dust 
Like the coal dust from active mining is probably leading to negative health outcomes, but again, it's not like at the level of a, uh, I don't know, full blown epidemiological research study at this phase. Yeah. Um, That being said, I mean, I do believe that this style of mining is causing lots of health problems in these communities, and I can tell you. I've worked with a lot of number, or a large number of community members who believe the same thing. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you're describing a really distinct problem with this mining process in general is just that there's so much disturbance on such a large level uh, that it, it sounds like it's very hard to pinpoint where a problem might be. And it sounds like your work is involved in that, but when you're talking about a stream being particularly acidic and then one ridge line over you have fresh water uh it's not like it's not like you're finding a specific virus in the ecology and finding the effects on that virus it sounds like there's many many different variables that could be negatively affecting uh people organisms the forest whatnot um but yeah it sounds very hard to pinpoint and it sounds like that might be a result of the scale of what's really going on yeah and i mean i think it's even larger than mining itself i mean there's also large like kind of socioeconomic problems that have resulted from years like years of the industry being in the area that also kind of further provide kind of further muddy the waters because like the areas also tend to be very low income and yeah um have high degrees of smoking rates. There's also high degrees of black lung um, amongst miners who live in the community. So, um, and I mean, if you're trying to isolate just surface mining, you also have to like look at the other environmental impacts of the area. So there's also many abandoned underground mines that are also leaking pollution into the area, which um, also, yeah, create issues. Yeah. So before we get too much into the the social side of things, I I am still curious um, what this looks like for wildlife in the area. I I know like certain species will set up territories and they'll live in an area for a long period of time. And I'm curious what kind of wildlife displacement or effect it's had on uh, wildlife populations and if there's any species in particular that have been affected by this. Yeah, um, well, I have, I'm not exactly a biologist, so, I mean, my area of expertise is, is largely limited to the macroinvertebrates of the streams Yeah. Um, from my work. That being said, I mean, I do, there is reclamation work that's being done specifically for various kinds of habitat, and my understanding is, like, that's actually been kind of positive so i mean they're if you're like in managing for the particular species of reclamation but mm-hmm. that being said would you disturb such a large area i mean things like bears and deers like call that area home and i actually i shouldn't say deer many deers actually do graze on mine sites but mm. um like for instance like Several mines have been reclaimed for elk habitat, and like that is specifically good 
for the elk, but I, I don't know. I mean, elk haven't lived here in this area for, well, probably a hundred years or more. So, I mean, I, I don't know how that fares for the other biodiversity in the area. Yeah. Um, but like, if we start talking about like tree and tree biodiversity, we have some of the most biodiverse forests in this region. And, um, like I can tell you that those forest recoveries are not great in the areas where they're not doing the forestry reclamation approach mm-hmm. and may not even be great in areas where, um, they are. I mean, it kind of depends on one is what approach is the mine using and are they doing a good job of like sticking to their reclamation plan? Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious, do you want to talk yeah, do you want to talk about what you do specifically? I know you talked about your project with SkyTruth and yeah, I'm curious like on the day-to-day, what is it that you're doing um with Appalachian Voices? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do many, many things at Appalachian Voices. So it's every day looks different. Mm-hmm. But well, I mean, so we do have that citizen science water quality testing streams under mines component that I mentioned, and that's with um, kind of community volunteers who are interested in the water quality of mines above their homes. And um, so we go out, we identify points on maps using things like Google Earth and Google Earth Engine. Mm-hmm. We use a program called EpiCollect to like record data and we lo- kind of loan out these water monitors to um, yeah, the community members to go out and test their individual streams. The reason we spend so much time using maps is we can't actively trespass on the mine site. So we spend a lot of time figuring out like where we can legally test the water so that, you know, we don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but so very often that looks like finding culverts where the water goes under public roads or like goes to bridges or like on a person's private property if we have permission. Um, so that's one thing that we do. Another we do is we answer and try to help uh, Coalfield citizens with complaints. Yeah. So um, when a citizen calls in a complaint to the state agency, a lot of them um, – People or a lot of people in the area believe that the state regulators are in the pockets of the coal companies, um, but a lot of them are just have not been very satisfied with the state's results. Mm-hmm. Um, so we help coalfield citizens get their complaints resolved through the state agencies. And those complaints can look like a variety of things coming off of mines. Like during the first stages of mining, like you, we often deal with blasting complaints. We deal with dust complaints. And um, so sometimes like the coal trucks will come down off of mines and they will be tracking mud from the mines onto the roads and then the roads will dry and that dust will find its way is into the community. Like mm-hmm. essentially the coal trucks become vectors for bringing dust into the community. So we deal with a lot of dust complaints, um, occasionally deal with flooding complaints of water coming off of mines. And every once in a while we'll deal with something like a landslide or, um, 
something of that nature that's come onto a person's property. Um, or like, yeah, some larger like sedimentation issues that are like clogging up streamlands below a person's property. So, mm-hmm. um, we help citizens resolve their complaints, like informing them of their rights. We teach them that they are allowed to go on mine inspections and we'll often accompany them. Mm-hmm. We will like, provide them access to attorneys, um, to help kind of resolve their legal issues. So yeah. we work very closely with the team of attorneys to like, kind of examine the legal front of all this. Um, occasionally we have brought lawsuits against coal companies. So we bring two or three of those a year. Okay. Um, so, and like, once we get into a lawsuit, you know, that's a lot of requires a lot of work and capacity from my time. And, yeah. um, so helping community members prep for that. And, um, we also do a lot of policy work where we work a lot around, um, well, making change, examining rulemakings um, that are going on at the federal level with the Office of Surface Mining. Um, also, on the waterfront at the EPA, we pay attention to like what water quality rulemakings are going on there and engage in those processes if they are what we deem negative rulemakings. And if they're rulemakings that are positive, we engage in that too. So we... We do lots of different things. Yeah, it sounds like it. And yeah, I'm impressed with the fact that, I guess, organizations such as Appalachian Voices really come in and fill the gap where there's a need for protection for certain things. And yeah, the from science to uh, lawsuits to creating and enabling policy, yeah, there's just so much to be done. And it's very impressive that organizations are effective at actually creating a platform for all of that. Um, I did have a couple questions though that popped up while we were while you were running through what you did, and that just goes back to um, MTR and uh, yeah, I'm just curious. Are you said you're not act, you're not allowed to actively trespass on mine sites? the resource extraction I'm most familiar with is logging. And in the Northwest, um, that generally looks like loggers getting permits to log certain areas of national forest with mining. Is that are, are most of these permits on private land or does this occur on national or public land? Oh, wow. You've just hit on another (laughs) vast topic that I could talk (laughs) <laughs> a long time about, but I'll try to be brief. Oh, you don't need to uh, go as long as you want. Well, you, so there's the answer is both. Okay. Um, well, so first of all, there is a very extensive permitting process for mining that I can go into. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, that is another thing that we often help community members look at is like actually p- provide them the expertise as to like not only get the mine permit like that's above their home, but also like actually understand mm-hmm. it. Um, now, one of the things in the permit is what's called the right of entry, which deals with like how does the mine have the legal right 
to mine that land. Mm -hmm. Now, there's kind of two different um, broad approaches to the right of entry. So very, very often in Appalachia, we have these large landholding companies that mm -hmm. own wide swaths of land already. So there was a study done in the early 80s called Who Owns Appalachia? It was funded by the Appalachian Resource Commission, mm -hmm. that, and which found like many counties had large, like many, many acres of land that are, were held by these large corporations, um, absentee landowners that were not in the area. Okay. Now, that model, those land holding companies then lease their land to the mining operators and like that gives them the right to mine. Okay. Um, the other thing that can also sometimes happen is like the coal companies can piecemeal lots of smaller individual tracks together and, um, they can do that, um, and sometimes they can do it to the detriment of the landowners because um, sometimes the coal company will have the mineral rights, like the mineral rights will be severed mm -hmm. from the surface rights, and the coal company will still have access to the minerals and be able to mine land even like um, to the detriment of the landowner. Like they, they have a right to access their minerals, which also creates problems. Um, yeah. This is particularly problematic in Kentucky where they have, um, well, if like you have several heirs of a, of land that own a, like a family that owns a tract of property and um, one of them wants to mine the coal and several others don't, Yeah, like they can still like find ways to get access to mining said property, which, um, so yeah, like kind of plays out one of two ways, um, that way I, I did mention large land holding companies. There's also like, sometimes the coal companies themselves are the large land holding companies and other times, uh, the land holding companies lease the land to the coal companies. But, um, all of those scenarios exist in Appalachia. Okay. Um, and how often is it done on public land? Well, here in Appalachia, not very often. Yeah. Out west, it is more common. Okay. So, like, there's a federal leasing system out west on the through the Bureau of Land Management, and it's much more common out west than it is um, here. Yeah. So I'm not as well versed in that, but um, yeah, and I could connect you some of my colleagues that are. That would be great. Yeah, I, I I seem to remember that being a problem in Montana recently that I just learned about is uh, different leasing of fracking rights in eastern Montana for uh, like cents on the dollar, like cents per acre, something like that. Can't remember super well, but I had... So the other question that popped up for me is you're talking about um, doing stream monitoring and I'm curious, uh, yeah, you're not allowed to trespass on different mine sites. Do you try to acquire permissions from 
different coal companies or is that generally not granted? What does that look like? Um, yeah, it's, it wouldn't be granted. I mean, it's, um, to be perfectly honest, I haven't tried, but Mm -hmm. I, I could virtually guarantee that they would say no. Okay. So there's not, um, it, it doesn't seem like the coal companies don't seem to be as actively involved in monitoring the pollution from their mines. Uh, well, no. So they are required by law to monitor their monitoring points. And that is in the coal mines permit. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are requ- there's three major permits that are required for a large mountain top removal operation. There's a, what's called the surface mining permit, the SPACRA permit. There's the water quality permit or the NIPTES permit, as we often call it, NPDES. Mm-hmm. And then there's the valley fill permit. Um, and so the NIPTES permit is specifically the water permit. And I mean, they do have hire their own people to go out and monitor the sites. Yeah. Uh, and in addition, the mine inspectors from the agencies are going out every month to look at different aspects of the site and then do a full inspection quarterly. Is- um, so like all of that data is being looked at and collected. Okay. Um, but our work kind of supplements what the state and federal government do. Cause we have like, sometimes we've had to force the state's hand to do their job. Yeah. Actually, and so that's kind of like how it plays out. And sometimes we have done that with our own water quality monitoring data. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have done that by monitoring the, the mine and states like submitted data and catching stuff that they missed. Mm-hmm. So outside of the citizen science and the science that uh, organizations like yours are doing, is there any sort of third-party verification system for the data that coal companies uh, submit from their sources, or is it is it all just from the single source? Well, so, yeah, I mean, they hire, the coal companies hire a monitoring firm which collect data and submit it to the state. Okay. In theory, the state is checking that, data like with their own inspections periodically okay and the lab that they are checking it like the lab that the coal company's monitoring company is sending that data to is a state certified lab so it goes through a certification process yeah um but even through all of that we have still been able to catch things that the coal mines monitoring companies have missed in the past mm-hmm. and um, have found things through our own monitoring data because there are so many like monitoring points coming off of these mines. It's like we've actually had a lot of success with our water monitoring program. So, so. yeah, that's really cool. Um, and you're talking about um, kind of catching these, missed spots in the data and then working with the state or yeah, 
kind of helping to provide motivation to address these issues? What does that look like? Yeah, so, well, my take on it is, like, I generally do what the community member I'm working with wants me to do. Uh huh. Like, that's how I always approach this kind of process. Well, science first, but also, like, I am the community member's advocate mm-hmm. when I enter into a situation. Yeah. So um, that's kind of my mentality. So, like, sometimes that work looks like working with the state to resolve the violation. Sometimes that looks like going on a citizen inspection with the Coalfield citizen, uh, which is, like, they're right under SMAC. Like, then we get onto a mine site. And I, sh- I don't know if I've clarified this. SMACRA is the surface mining law. It's the abbreviation of the surface mining law. Okay. But um, so, like, sometimes that looks like going on to a citizen's inspection of the mine site with the state agencies. And sometimes that looks like suing the coal company. It all depends on what the citizen wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um. And I have helped them do all three of those things. And that's. So you're, I guess you're largely in touch with landowners or different people that have been affected by uh, surface mining generally. Yes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we get calls. Sometimes it's just like friendships and relationships we've built over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but it's it's a combination of things. But yeah, we get reached out to by the community quite regularly, okay. and sometimes when we're out in the field, other people just approach us because they see us and wonder what we're up to, and we tell them. Yeah. So that brings to mind another question, and like I mentioned, I'm most familiar with logging as an as like the resource of the area, and uh, I'm specifically from Eureka, Montana, which is a small town in the northwest corner. But from my experience growing up in a traditional, traditionally, well, a community that was traditionally supported by logging, um, there tends to be a certain level of um, like a desire to protect logging as a means of income in the area. And they're uh, by a lot of the citizens, um, and it seems to be, yeah, there's there's pushback against environmentalism um, or different, yeah, different things that might obstruct any sort of income into the area by logging. Um, and I'm curious how that looks in Appalachia, which we should actually, <laughs> I should ask you too, like, where are you right now? Where are you um, working? But yeah, I'm curious how that looks where you are. Is there, um, from the communities that you work with, is there kind of endorsement of what you're doing or is there kind of a defensiveness of the coal industry generally? Uh, yes, on both accounts. Okay. Um, so how I, I get this question a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, the way I always answer it is communities are not homo homogeneous like their communities are made of many different kinds of people and there are people that are very yeah i mean still very very supportive of the coal industry and hate anything that is related to environmentalism where we live there are Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's actually an interesting disconnect between some of the older underground miners that still hate the strip mines. Um, that's the huh. thing that I see. Um, and there's some folks that just really, really love their mountains and care for the area and don't want to see any of it destroyed and like yeah. are really hoping for a new future in which like based on things like tourism and, um, like capitalizing on the natural beauty of the area. Right. Um, this has become more prominent now. Like coal has been, coal production has been declining. Well, it's been declining for the past 30 years, but it has hit a steep decline in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at least some of the community leaders were now seeing like, um, kind of like the heads of town councils and, um, county commissioners and whatnot are are really starting to work with us now, like talking about alternative economies. And so I've really seen a shift in that perception um, in the past four or five years in terms of like how much influence coal has in the area. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that being said, I mean, yeah, there is a wide range of feelings about surface mining within Appalachia itself. It's not all one thing or another. Yeah. Yeah. I, you could say that again, communities are not homogenous that that makes a lot of sense and actually reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, a conservation director for a wilderness, um, not wilderness protection nonprofit in Montana. And she really talked about building bridges and like connecting the values of the people who live in the area. Cause I mean, one thing you might be able to say confidently, it could be wrong, is just that, you know, people tend to share some values or some level of care for the land that they live on. Um, That is one of the shared aspects of a community is you're all in the same place. You're in Virginia, right? I am. I, so, um... When I got married a few years ago, I actually left the coal fields uh, one county over from them. Okay. But I work in Norton, Virginia, right in the middle of, um, well, yeah, the Virginia coal fields. Okay. Wise County. Okay. And are is your work uh, centralized in that area, or do you travel around to different parts of Appalachia? Yeah, so our team... Primarily works in Virginia, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, and Eastern Tennessee, like the coal fields of those four states. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we kind of painted the picture of what it looks to, what it looks like to work with uh, people of the communities that you're working with, um, and I'm we kind of touched on it, but I'm curious what it looks like to work with different coal companies. Is that is this generally um, conflict-based? Is lawsuits like the primary form of interaction, or is there uh, more of an open form of communication that's based on compromise? Now, that's a very good question. Um, I would like to say we... I, I think I have a positive relationship with several of the coal operators. Now, I mean, we've definitely sued them, and I'm sure they would prefer that we did not do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, you can't work across the table from somebody for a long period of time without like getting to know various operators 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would like to think that I am respected by them, like in the work that I do. And yeah. to that degree, like, I mean, the conversations have always been civil. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's going for us. And I mean, right now we're kind of exploring a project in which we're, we are dec- directly working with industry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't want to paint the pic- picture that it's completely adversarial. Um, yeah. I will say, I mean, it is, I would say maybe largely adversarial, but I mean, I've been, I've been polite to everybody I've worked with and been fairly well treated in return so like it's yeah so you said you're working with coal operators what is a coal operator well uh, i mean coal company it's coal just company. another so are you, another term i mean yeah i guess kind of well i guess they do mean slightly different things like so a coal company is the person that acquires the coal mm-hmm. and sometimes that's the same person as the operator sometimes um, a coal company essentially contracts a different operator and the operator is the person that's pulling the coal out of the ground. Yeah. And then the coal company is the person that is then taking that coal, distributing it and selling it. Yeah. Uh, we have both in that sentence, I was using them inter- interchangeably, but you actually do have both situations An operator does mean a slightly different thing. Yeah. I guess part of my motivation for asking this question is like, these issues are pretty abstract for most people and it's hard to imagine like what goes on between say an environmentalist uh, community-based organization and a coal company. And I, I'm really curious, like when you're sitting down and talking to these people, um, what is the level of like poignancy you're addressing this issue with um, like how to the point is it and what kind of receptiveness do you, get when you are talking about maybe health effects or environmental effects of uh, different mining operations? Yeah, and I think that's, well, that's also a kind of a circumstantial thing, too. Um, It's going to depend on the person that, like, if it's a community member, um, it could range the whole gambit. now, I will say in the more public-facing hearings, it does become, those kinds of things become a lot more adversarial. So, like, mm-hmm. if there is a public rulemaking or, if, like, sometimes we'll ask for a hearing on a mine permit, like a new mine permit um, in objection to it, those kinds of things, like, the, tend to be very, very polarized. Yeah. But usually, but the, I don't know, the more one-on-one conversations tend to be less so, though. So it's, I mean, again, like I said, if you worked with a, sat across the table with a different person, like, or like a co-operator for a long time, if you've been working with it, it's hard to, like, the conversations remain real civil and, like, polite. And even though you're coming from different places, it's, I don't know, it's, I've never gotten into a shouting match with a coal executive. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I'm doing something right. Yeah. And that makes sense too. Just that on a one-on-one more human level, you're going to have a conversation that is going to, you know, be between two people versus if you're 
like you're saying, in a, a public setting and it's not really person talking to a person. It's more of a an idea of behind a company or a movement facing another mm-hmm. one. Yeah, it makes sense that there would be more conflict there. Um, what is it? What does it look like politically working um, in this industry? What kind of uh, political protections or what kind of receptiveness do you have from local government? Uh, all right. Well, so I should probably clear being a five hundred one c three. I have to <laughs> temper the political questions. Okay. Somewhat. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I will say that working with our our work in local government, particularly around like um, another a program that. So I work for the Central Appalachian Program, but we have another program in Appalachian Voices called the New Economy Program, mm-hmm. which is kind of centered on re- around rebuilding the economy in the area. Um, and I mean, we're currently kind of pursuing two bills at the federal level, the Abandoned Mine Land Reauthorization Act and what's called the Reclaim Act, which would release more than a billion dollars worth of funds into various economic development uh, projects. Mm-hmm. And um, now, as of last year, both of those bills had bipartisan support. Um, I don't know where they stand this year and this year's Congress. Um, yeah. Still very early on, so trying to. But. Uh, like one of our strategies is engaging with the local leaders and like uh, local politicians at the local level. And I mean, we receive widespread support from every community we went to. Uh, so we went to a number of town councils asking them for resolutions in support of these bills and received them mm-hmm. on both fronts. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, there is widespread interest, at least amongst the community leaders, in trying to diversify the economy away from coal. Yeah. And that has, I don't know, that's been a really positive um, positive thing for the organization. And, I mean, I, the political leaders in those town councils are on both sides of the political spectrum. So it's that's been real great to see. Everybody's interested in rebuilding community and recognizes that something needs to be done. And so for the most part, like in that specific area, Mm -hmm. I see a lot of folks working together and that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, And as far as moving away from these types of mining, uh, what other options are there for providing power for the area? Well, so so coal has been in decline for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually, one of the things Appalachian Voices does is we operate this site called Open Source Coal. Um, if I can get into what that is for a minute just yeah. to explain it. Um, we So this site uh, essentially pulls data from the Mine Safety and Hazards Administration and the Energy and Information Administration about like coal production and coal work. And um, we essentially load that into a large SQL database that allows us to um, kind of slice the data and query the data any way we want to. Uh, um, Like takes it, 
so we don't have to like continue to look look the data up through like PDFs and whatnot. Um, okay. So this site, well, it gives us a real good look at coal production and um, coal jobs in the area. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, we've seen the downward decline in coal for the past 30 years or so. It seems like the rise of natural gas has like largely been the driver driver of the steam coal um, part of that. So, okay. um, coal has been declining. The rise of natural gas appears to be filling that void. But also at the same time, you have renewables, um, solar and wind, which are amongst the fastest growing. They're still making up a small percentage of the overall electric grid, but they are the fastest growing. So they will soon like become more and more significant mix of the grid. Um, and so, I mean, at one time coal was well over 50% of the power grid power mix. And now it's below 30. Um, so it's, so hopefully kind of a cessation of these, uh, fossil fuels and, moving into natural resources. Um, I was curious also with coal mining declining in that region of Appalachia, is there any like importation of fossil fuels, maybe coal um, or natural gas from different parts of the United States or other countries? Um, I am not sure off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. made a lot of we do produce a lot of coal exports and I do monitor exports, but the importation of coal, I'm less familiar with. Okay. And, and I guess the other thing I should mention is like, so there's two primary uses of coal. Okay. Uh, I mean, the electric generation is one, but a lot increasingly more and more of the production here in central Appalachia has been moving towards metallurgical coal, which is the coal that is used, in um steel making okay and so i mean the the decline in coal well as the power plants shift um to natural gas and other sources that's one part but there's this this whole other um part of the equation which is like there is um some areas um in central west virginia and appalachia where like coal is still needed for producing coke for producing steel making and mm -hmm. like that mining is still going on um as long as there's a market for that right yeah and i get that makes me wonder whether or not you think that there is like a sustainable level for us to be pursuing coal mining um and per, to be pursuing coal as a resource to uh, you know, fuel our economy or our cars or electricity or whatever it is, um, if there's a level of mining that's acceptable or if that's something that we should even be trying to do is like, should we be looking at the means of making coal mining um, and surface mining the best it can be or should we be looking for something else? Yeah, and I mean, it's, a, it's obviously a very difficult question because we all consume electricity and we all use resources mm -hmm. but i mean 
I think Appalachian Voice's primary focus is on the energy transition, so taking us more towards cleaner sources of energy, renewable energy, all the while being realistic about the fact that coal mining is an employer in our region, so pairing that with kind of a just transition framework, retraining miners and working with them to bring or develop a new economy in the area. I mean, that's kind of our two primary objectives of work in the coal fields right there. So yeah, I, those are the two areas, like our two primary focuses. And I mean, we do work a lot with black lung underground coal miners and helping them get their black lung benefits. And I can count several coal miners amongst my friends, underground coal mines, but I mean, it's, that question is challenging, but in many ways, I think it's also, well, given the way the market is going, mm-hmm. almost less relevant because coal is becoming less and less of our energy mix. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Maybe less of a an absolute goal in mind and more of a mitigation of the worst effects of what's going on presently. And yeah, I'm curious... Then with that in mind, what are the current challenges in the industry? I know you mentioned your project, yeah, measuring the success of different rehabilitation and reclamation projects. So, yeah, what are the current challenges in the industry? Yeah, well, I mean, I've alluded to several times that coal is in massive decline right now, which it is. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the things we are really, really concerned about right now is kind of a widespread uh, collapse of the bonding industry for coal companies. Okay. So, um, and like coal companies' ability to reclaim their sites well um, due to essentially financial constraints. Okay. Um, So as... Coal companies are supposed to reclaim their mines, like restore the land back to approximate original contour and revegetate their areas according to a, a plan in their permit. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they are also required to put up a bond to recover costs should they go bankrupt. Okay. But a number of states have implemented what they have called what are called alternative bonding systems. So that either that's like a pool, like a kind of a source of money that the state maintains to like address um, issues if the company were to go to bankrupt, or mm-hmm. some states, well at least Virginia where I work, still has a thing called self bonds, where if a company is large enough, they're essentially deemed to be good for the money. Okay. Um, now, but now we're in a situation where I've seen, at least in, in Appalachia, uh, we're in Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, uh, and Kentucky, that there are potential stressors mm-hmm. on those alternative bonding systems as coal companies are either go into bankruptcy or go into very near bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, that essentially several large actors, several large companies have not been doing a very good job of meeting their obligations and have been in danger of 
either forfeiting their bond or, um, and there's concerns of like whether those bonding systems will alternative bonding systems will hold. Okay. So, um, if that were to happen, we don't know if those mines would reclaim themselves. So, um, the revelation black jewel bankruptcy features very heavily into this. So that's been a major bankruptcy that's been playing out for the past two years now. And, um, we are concerned that, well, certainly many mines could potentially be forfeited in a way that they don't get a complete reclam like their reclamation isn't completely covered. Um, okay. So can't guarantee that that's going to happen. It all depends on how the bankruptcy plays out. Yeah. Um, and how many sites get abandoned. Like, like, is that ultimately determined? Well, they're trying to sell off those companies mm -hmm. to other, other mining companies. And the number that ultimately get left remaining in the state determines like how much stress is put on that bonding system. Yeah. But it's still, there is concern of kind of a widespread bonding collapse that will leave tens, if not hundreds of millions dollars of un, essentially unreclaimed land in central Appalachia. So that is a thing that we are watching very, very closely right now. Yeah. And as you anticipate that um, potential abandonment of these reclamation sites, um, what are you doing or what does preparation for that look like? Or what would our, yeah, our response so, look like? Well, I mean, so that's a, it's a couple of things. I mean, the primary thing is following the bankruptcies very, very closely. Mm -hmm. um, even though we're not parties to the case in the revelation bankruptcy, we have filed several things with the court just kind of like an outside party um, and the court has accepted those and put put them into the docket mm -hmm. and through that we've kind of led the conversation mm -hmm. and um, gotten press and reporters to cover it to like talk about the broader implications of what it means in this new political administration we are talking about working with the federal agency to see if they can begin to try to address some of these issues yeah and but that's still because the administration just changed over, that's still in its very beginning stages right now. Okay. So, yeah, just a lot of actively directing attention towards this problem so that in the case that it does fail, there will be at least anticipation of a need to respond. Yeah. And then with another company here in Virginia, like this is another example of actually cooperation uh, with the state agency. So we were... We're actually actively working with the state agency, like the state agency and this uh, particular coal company. We're in um, we're in a settlement negotiation because um, several of their mines were essentially placed into going to be placed into bond forfeiture, and so we kind of we approached the state and got ourselves written into the um, kind of that agreement. So. We now have access to regular inspections of those same mines. Okay. And I'm actually going on inspection tomorrow, um, kind of checking out the site, a uh, particular site in Virginia that we think are, um, yeah, could potentially be abandoned. Um, hopefully the company does not do that. But um, so that also puts kind of pressure 
on the coal company to do a good job because we are in effect watching them. And if they ever abandon that site, then we will either, well, we will either work with the state or take legal action. One of the two. Yeah. Um, so, so essentially, uh, holding them accountable. Yep. Well, how did you find yourself getting into this world? I'm, yeah, I'm interested at this point at like your interest in, um, yeah, the specifics of getting into protecting different communities um, that are affected by this mountaintop removal mining. Yeah, so I went to school at Virginia Tech, which is close, but not in the coal fields. It's, I mean, West Virginia is still about an hour drive away. Um, mm. But there I studied geography, uh, which, I mean, many kind of environmental science. Um, issues have a geography component Mm -hmm. and um, so um, from there like I got involved with an environmental group who was doing work in West Virginia and went by the name of Mountain Justice um, found a couple of GIS projects leading to the community really enjoyed that like so created a map of um, coal slurry injection site, which is kind of the waste chemicals they use from washing coal, um, sometimes get injected back underground into abandoned coal mines. And, um, since like I had my GIS geographic information systems mapping background, I created this map for that group Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know, just got really interested in this surface mining mountaintop removal issue and um, eventually went back to grad school and remained interested in the issue and then started working for the Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards, did that for about seven years and now I am working for Appalachian Voices. I've been here almost five years now, um, kind of working around the issues of mining and there is still a great deal of overlap between kind of the mapping and a lot of the mapping work I do and, um, the, yeah, the environmental science side of things. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of specific experience in the field. I'm curious. Um, did you grow up in the region? So I grew up in Bath County, Virginia, which is, is in Appalachia again, not in the coal fields. Um, I was born in West Virginia. Um, but like I spent most of my life in Bath County. Um, yeah. So, I mean, kind of close to, to coal, but not really like in the coal fields themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then kind of after grad school, I was, um, yeah, I lived in, when I worked for Sam's, I was living in Appalachia for well, seven or eight years in as, Sorry, Appalachia is a town name in kind okay. of the coal fields of Virginia. Okay. And um, I was there kind of in the center of it all. Yeah. I guess I'm curious, looking at it retrospectively, did you do you think any of the, like, any observations you might have had of uh, the social or socioeconomic impact that this mining has had, do you think any of that motivated um, your interest in this? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, 
I mean, I think the thing that really got me interested in joining the first environmental group, I heard a man named Larry Gibson speak once. And mm-hmm. I mean, he had a fairly horrific experience with a mountaintop removal mine near his home on Caford, West Virginia. And I mean, I think that was my first entry point into the, into the movement. I mean, he had, I mean, what I would call some of the, some of the worst experiences I've heard to date of happening to anyone. Mm-hmm. Like the mining operators uh, dug through one of his cemeteries and shot one of his dogs. And it's, I mean, mm. really, really terrible stuff. But I mean, hearing him speak was kind of like, was my entryway into the organization. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And I, I imagine too, you probably, uh, growing up in the region and doing the work that you do, that there's an immense amount of care that you have for this area. And that's definitely shown through the work that you do. Yeah. I mean, so I, I often like to say it like this is like, I began this work early on just kind of wanting to have an outlet for expression of my environmental values. Yeah. But very quickly that morphed into this work really being about the people of the region. Mm-hmm. And so, and now like, I mean, that has been my primary motivation for a long, long time. I, I, uh, I really think of my work really being people centric as opposed to environmental, mm-hmm. environmentally centric. And I mean, that is the core of not only like how we do the work, but like how kind of we, I approach many of my processes. I'm yeah. like, that's why like most of the science projects I do are actually citizen science projects. I try to take a very people centered approach in every piece of like how we work. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Getting people involved. And I think, I know I learn mostly through doing, so it's it's so important to get out and actually see and uh, be involved in what's going on out there. And I can see how the citizen science approach would really address that. I'm curious, what can people do to help or contribute to what you're doing with Appalachian Voices? Yeah, I mean, there's it's always a challenge to plug different people in, mm-hmm. I mean, I always, again, being a people centered person, I always try to match people's skill sets to needs. I mean, yeah. honestly, I think if they would go on their just website and you can get my email mm-hmm. or I, I can, I guess I can give it to you. Um, anyone can reach out to me and I can try to specifically fill in, plug them into something based off of the kind of work that they're interested in. Yeah. So, like with local folks, I tend to do more on the ground stuff. Um, though I am starting to like think about developing projects that are kind of more crowdsourced. Um, mm-hmm. I do, yeah, I do have a project in the works that folks from anywhere can do, and that's kind of a new developing thing. But we're working on that right now. Well. Matt, as we start to wrap this up, I wonder, is there anything else you want to put out there or anything, any questions I should have asked you? Um, anything that's 
still on your mind that should be discussed in this podcast? Oh, I'll probably think of something as soon as I hang up, but I don't <laughs> have anything right now. Okay. Well, it's been it's been awesome talking to you, and I'm really glad we could get together to do this. So thanks so much for coming on and talking about this. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. So, Matt, I super appreciate you coming back to answer a follow-up question. Um, and when I was going through our podcast, listening to it from start to finish, I think what we're missing is just the question of what is the ideal and what are you hopeful about? And like, what can we be maybe banking on or like hoping for as far as transitioning into a more sustainable uh, energy economy? Well, yeah. And I mean, what gives me a lot of hope right now is just the change I've seen within the Coalfield community in the past five years. Um, a lot, I mean, just a lot more people have been approaching App Legend Voices with an interest in renewable energy and sustainable development and diversifying the economy of the coal fields. Um, and 10 years ago, those con conversations weren't happening at all. It's just many people kind of believed in the coal narrative. And now lots of people are willing to have those conversations from like town managers and town councils to even like some of these large land holding companies are pursuing renewable energy projects. And um, so all of that really gives me hope and I'm pretty sure it will continue on as coal continues to decline. So yeah. um, I think, I think it's going to happen. It's just, it'll happen slowly, but it will happen. And, I'm just happy to be a part of it. Thank you.